So it's getting to the end of the day. That is not a reason for the energy levels to slip because uh, we've got an absolutely cracking panel for you coming up here. So this session is really about creating exportable opportunities. And as we all know, the challenge in the green energy revolution lies in creating a new type of supply chain driven by innovation that can renew past successes and establish the UK as a global leader. But the key question is in which technologies and in what systems and how do we actually make that happen? And I can think of no one better to lead the charge on this and answer these questions than my dear friend, my innovator in residence, John McKinnon, Head of Innovation Pipeline at ESP. John, over to you. Come back with that mic, okay. Hello, come back, come back, this is exciting. Come back in here. Okay, okay guys, this is it. This is very appropriate. Thanks, thanks Matt for that. So we, we have been surviving sequential challenges and threats, and I wrote them down here in case I mix, missed one. So I'm Irish, so Brexit number one, ooh. Global pandemic, we're still here, we're still alive. Come on in, it's fantastic. Uh, the war in the Ukraine, don't miss that one. And then an energy crisis, then a cost of living crisis, and we still have the climate change crisis. And all of this is just testing our resilience. It's testing your resilience. The fact that you are still here, four o'clock day one, you guys are actually the people going to deliver net zero. Well done to people in the room. Yes. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> so uh, and surviving this long. And I, and I have to say, I was a bit shocked when there was a professor from Cambridge this morning set the bar very high saying that whale poo could save us. I'm, I still have to work that one out. But anybody who was here, it is a fact. I'm not making that up. Uh, so, so thank you very much. But look, we're... we're um, we're just a couple of minutes away from an ice cold beer. So, but I think you'll all enjoy it a lot more if we finish on a bit of a brighter future note. There's been a lot of, oh, we've got all these problems in the way. These people here are problem solvers and they've, they've, they come from the school of hard knocks. You know, they're not teenagers like myself, but they have <laughs> things to share. They have things to share, and they're, the thing about it is when they get to this stage of their career, they don't mind sharing them either, because they they're not worried about anybody else. So this is privileged access, guys. You're really, really lucky. So, um, so a quick vox pop. Who wants net zero to happen in the UK first? Hands up. Most people except the Norwegian guy. Okay, <laughs> who wants low cost, clean, reliable power? Hey, you can cheer also. Okay, who wants economic security? Hey, okay. So, the first two were talked about at nauseam earlier on. So we're gonna look about the, the last piece because if you look at the energy sector, you know, it used to be dull and boring place. That's why I work in it, because that's, you know. Uh, but it's, 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 it now has a huge role to play in decarbonizing, right? The industry itself has to decarbonize, number one. And we're talking about that earlier on. It has to provide clean, affordable, reliable, secure power, right? If it does that in the UK, it, it's not just supporting itself, it's supporting every single industry in the UK because nobody's going to set up shop here if they don't have access to clean, affordable, reliable power. So it's a huge enabler. But the third piece is the bit that we're going to explore. If you do those two pieces really well, that's what everybody wants on this planet at the moment. They all want to do that first. You can export that knowledge right around the world and you can help decarbonize the planet faster. Okay, so the energy sector, Rah, let's do it. So we're going to be the glass half full 
That last half empty, what they were on earlier on. We're the last half full team here, right? So we're like a thrill to have three captains of industry here. They're thought leaders in the development of the net zero supply chain. And also, you know, they're going to share some really, you're going to leave here with going, aha, I'm going to take that with me and use it in my day job. So some insights into how the UK can take a slice of that ridiculously large, clean, green energy sector, the, the whole green economy. According to McKinsey, it's like four or five trillion a year for the next, until we hit net zero, five, ten years out, whatever. It's the largest movement of capital in the history of the planet. Okay, so not too shabby, you might say. One of these pages has my next notes on it. Ah, here it is. So, without further ado, let's talk to the people who know something. So, Steve, you're up first. And just in case you didn't know, Steve, I wrote some notes down. So, Steve is the Vice President of Siemens Energy for Ireland, yay, and the UK, slightly bigger. Uh, he's also, uh, he's up there, yeah. He's also a member of the UK government's Hydrogen Energy Advisory Council, not up there. Uh, also, uh, a, and sits on the Green Jobs Delivery Group. So, relevant guy to have here. Uh, he also has a passion, he's a passionate advocate of the just energy transition. So, you know, fairness to all as we get there. Uh, also, there are 4,000 people work for Steve. So, he is, he is actually the embodiment of let's build something, let's do it, and let's export it. So, first question goes to Steve with a CV like that. I think, you know, we'll give you, we'll give you the first question. So, from your perspective, Steve, in terms of, you know, we're on this journey to net zero. Everybody knows what net zero looks like. We know the destination. Nobody really knows how we're going to get there. There's many different paths. And if you're going to do a roadmap from A to B, we know what B is. Where is A? Like, where is the UK starting from? I mean, if we're looking to generate large exportable businesses, where are we on the global leaderboard as we stand today? Steve. Thank you. What? What, a, what an act to follow, eh? How do you follow that? It's quite difficult. So, as, as it says on the tin, I'm Steve Scrimshaw. I look after Siemens Energy UK and Ireland. Um, roughly a sixth of all the electricity generation in the world is done on kit that we make or supply. So, quite a big piece. In answer to your question, where, where are we in the global leaderboard? Um, I would have said at one point we were probably up there as first. Um, we own... 99% of Siemens Gamesa, renewable energy. We set up a factory, two factories in Hull. Uh, we've made 2,000 blades so far, so that's been a real success. But I think we're starting to see some cracks and we're probably coming down that leaderboard now from where we would have been at the top. We had all the policies, the funds, and that sort of stuff. And I think we're slowly going down. And I think that's because um, maybe we're not recognizing that some of the goalposts have changed um, in recent times. You've heard about the Inflation Reduction Act in the States and the European response to that. I'm not saying that we can compete exactly with that and match it in terms of funding and finance, but we certainly could do a damn sight more to make this place a lot easier to do business with so you can, it's easier to actually establish here. So I would have probably ranked us maybe third or fourth but we shouldn't give up because it's the end of the day and it's something that we can do. So I'm a passionate believer that we can be back in first place again just with a little bit of change to the tiller and a little bit of change in some of these things. Fantastic. 
Well, I'm just thinking of the Grand Prix, and if you're on the starting grid, and you're, you know, the real money has to be spent yet, and if you're, you know, if you're there, thereabouts on the starting grid, it's who gets over the end line that counts. So uh, let's 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 see. We're 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 still we're not in pole position, but we're 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 definitely in the race. When we get to that first corner, we're going to be in pole position. We corner better. UK corners better. You heard it here first. T-shirts available later. Uh, right, th thank you for getting us on the pitch. Thank you, Steve. The ball is in play, ladies and gentlemen. Put your questions on Slido. Somebody will figure out how to use it. Andy, <laughs> over to you. So, uh, Andy, uh, or Andrew, as he's sometimes called by people who don't know him very well. Uh, I've got to call you Andy. Andy MacDonald, uh, Director of Offshore Wind Development Operations at ORE Catapult. Uh, think Catapult, very fast, going from zero to, you know, hopefully not splat, getting there faster. Um, so, uh, and your, 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 your response for the collaboration with Floating Offshore Wind Center of Excellence, uh, the O&M Center of Excellence, and the Offshore Growth part Wind Partnership. So, you're basically, you're like, a, you know, you've got tentacles into every cutting edge part of the offshore wind development. You're dedicated, believe it or not, this is like, this is your life, Eamon Andrews of old. You're dedicated to accelerating the growth of floating wind, well done you and reducing risks, uh, both risks and costs of O&M across the sector, which is vitally important because you can build them, but you have to really run them properly. So, uh, and, you, and you, have a, 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 you have 50 engineers, I think, around 50 engineers working for you, uh, focused on innovation and supply chain gro growth, very on topic. Right, Andy, where do you think we are on the starting grid? Are we gonna have a row here, or you know, how do you feel about it? Thank, thank, thank you, John. So, uh, as John says, I'm Andy McDonald. I'm the Director of Development and Operations at the, the Catapult. So, we have about 300 staff overall, so I, I look after a section within that. And, you know, what, what we're essentially doing is testing, qualifying, certifying products to go into the market. So, we're there testing the 100-plus meter blades, the 50-megawatt turbines uh, that's going out into the market. And so, we're, we're kind of that final point before it's going out and people are making the big investment decisions into where they're building factories and where, they, where they're, they're scaling up. So what we do that with, we do that with our engineering, our knowledge, and we'll talk about the importance of that as, as an exportable commodity, um, but we also do that through the assets and the, the testing that we do. So that's where Catapult kind of fits into the, the big picture. Um, you know, and we're very passionate about how we can make, you know, continue the growth of, of offshore wind. In terms of your, your kind of question where, where we are, I, I think the UK has never been short of leadership in, in terms of you know, industrialists, in terms of entrepreneurs, in terms of innovation. We're absolutely the, the forefront. But you always need a market to make it happen. And you need the policy from government in order to, to enable that to happen. And we're seeing bits of that. We're seeing the CFD, the Contracts for Difference, has absolutely worked to drive down costs of off, offshore wind. Um, but that's enabled us to deploy, and there's a distinction between our industrial leadership and our kind of deployment leadership. So we're absolutely at the forefront. We were number one. We're now knocked off that by China in terms of our deployment and the capacity that we've deployed. That's because we've put in policies that have driven to do that. But what we haven't necessarily done is then taken that and driven the same policies to give us that industrial clout going forward and the, the manufacturing that follows on from that. We're in a good place, and you know the likes of what, what Steve does with Siemens, you know, huge activity going on, but the market's growing and growing, and we could be doing more if, the, if that's created the, the uh, ability for companies to invest ahead of contracts being signed. And I think that's the policy point, is how do we turn the sector targets 
into something that's actually tangible for people to make investment decisions. So I guess overall, if it was the, the kind of headmaster, it'd be something like, you know, enthusiastic, but needs to show delivery. Okay. So we're, we're, we're still in the top three though, are we? We're, we're, we're absolutely in the top this three. sort of a consensus. No, no, no pressure on Gordon now to, to fall into line here. And, yeah, you know, yeah. you can see Gordon was saying he's on the edge there, you know, the edge. So I know what you're thinking. You know, the four of us, we look like musicians. We look like you two. He looks like he is the edge, you know, just a little, little hat there. We'll get out of guitars shortly. We'll finish up. It's going to be rock and roll all the way to the finish. Um, Gordon, seriously, uh, chairman of Aberdeen International Associates, director of Aberdeen Renewable Energy Group, Director of Economic Development for Aberdeen City Council in 95, uh, and then you retired as Director of Enterprise Planning and Infrastructure in 2016, uh, and then you got hooked in by the Canadians. So, yep, you know, yep. that's a bar story, is it? Some, some of the Canadians robbed you, um, <laughs> caught folk singing on the wrong, yeah, anyway. So, uh, and you were, you, you've been um, Deputy Minister of Natural Resources for the Government of Newfoundland Labrador. So you're a heavy hitting policymaker sneaking in the back door of this, this panel here. Well done, you. Um, so, and you, you've been giving energy advice to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador for quite some time. Uh, and interesting enough, it says here, and I don't know if it's true or not, so you'll have, you may have to fess up. Uh, you're a promoter both of oil and gas, boo, and renewable energy industries at the same time. So, you, but maybe you can see that crossover piece. Yeah. Uh, you've been involved in many projects and programs to develop a joint supply chain between those two, which is a very interesting link piece actually for this. And actually, we should be bowing because you are actually, you have an honorary professorship from Robert Gordon University. So, uh, Professor McIntosh. Um, so, never mind what these guys said. Where is the UK on the leaderboard, Professor? Well, thank you very much, John, for that fantastic introduction. Um, yeah, there's a lot in that. But going seriously back to ARE, Governing Renewable Energy Group, um, we did, we are 20 years old this year, um, we have 280 members, and we set up ourselves as the original energy transition organization. And the focus was to, to diversify the oil and gas supply chain in Aberdeen and the northeast of Scotland. Um, one of our early projects was the Aberdeen Bay Wind Farm and the All Energy Exhibition that is now in Glasgow. Um, so you know, we've been there for a, a long time, but it was focused in that transition from oil and gas. Uh, to renewables and to fill in, you know, some of the, the space that there was when the oil price went down. Uh, we've had real challenges over the years in that, in that area. But I think, you know, clearly the UK, thanks to, I would say, to Fitz and Rocks, have really been in a leading position in terms of wind. Uh, clearly we can see where Hornsey is. China just overtook us last year in terms of installed capacity. Um, and we've seen in the northeast of Scotland projects such as Highwind, uh, which was the first floating offshore in Kincardine until Highwind Tampin was, came on stream two months ago. It was the largest in the world. And even the Aberdeen Bay wind farm, the 9.8 megawatt turbine was the biggest in the world at that time. So, you know, we we're up there and we're, we're doing very well, but not to repeat what everyone else said and not trying to be half empty, John, uh, in terms of the glass, but I do feel that it's taking us longer to get projects delivered. When uh, I set up the Aberdeen Hydrogen Project in 2013, which was a hydrogen bus project, 10 buses, and we built um, from scratch 10 buses, 
uh, we built uh, a, a light, two electrolyzers, a fueling and storage situation, and we had 10 buses in the road within three years. It seems that you can't do that today. Other projects I'm in today seem to have quite a number of challenges. Everyone's beginning to cover their backs a little bit. And really, we need to get over that hump and start delivering projects in, in, in the UK. And if we can do that, we can catch up and we, on the leaders. We're not that far behind as both Steve and Andy said, but we can really get a hold of this and make a huge difference to our economy uh, and to the environment. So yeah, I think that we're in a good position and we're well thought of around the world. Um, I can't compete with Steve, but I'm the international advisor on hydrogen to the Colombian Gas Association, for example. And a lot of that is thanks to the reputation of the UK, not about me. Um, and you know, the UK has got a tremendous reputation and there are opportunities we can build on that. If we can build uh, a, a fantastic supply chain here, new businesses, plus on the back of the oil and gas industry, then we'd really have opportunities all around the world. Fantastic, uh, Gordon. You've kind of segued nicely into the second theme here, which we wanted to explore, which was lessons from the past. I mean, we're looking at this great venue. It's rejuvenating itself. You know, there's a hallowed history here. There was only one industrial level. Yeah, people talk about the five industrial revolutions, like 10. The, the industrial level, it started here, right? And it was all about coal. Uh, you got 200 years out of coal. Not too shabby. Any business model, like, give you 200 years, you're okay. Uh, and then it, we kind of, you know, Coal's dead now, gone. Uh, Zed's dead, goodbye coal. Uh, and then we had gas, you know, in the 70s, 80s. And we had a gas, natural gas boom, you know. And uh, I myself was an exported energy commodity. I was sent to Japan because our own company is the developed combined cycle. The first uh, IPP in Corby in the UK market needed an operator and they couldn't find one. So get the Irish lads over with a couple of spanners they look after it, you know. And then we built a business model off that. And I was dispatched to, to Japan to sell our expertise around the world because Ireland and UK had developed the world's leading operational experience of combined cycle gas turbines, which are still running today. We still run in, well, in Manchester right now. Uh, so we got, a, we got a good you know, 10, 20, 30 years out of that model as well. Uh, again, so we've got a coal, cleaner fuel, gas. And now we're, you know, it looks like we're going on to the next step of that. So, and, 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 you know, but it's, it's not, it's not as, it's not 200 years ago. It's fairly, and still going. So the bridge piece, maybe back to Stephen is, you know, what lessons could we take from that North Sea energy? You know, we, we, you know, that was a really successful for the UK, but export, what lessons could we harness from that and bring them into the, well, I think, I think if you go back to those eras, there was a, or that era, if you want to call it, that um, there was a skilled shortage, I guess, to sort of try and develop the North Sea oil and gas. A lot of Americans came over, etc. And I think we've now built up that skill base um, in the North Sea. And I'm convinced that that skilled workforce can transition into the new economies if it's hydrogen, hydrogen storage, ammonia, e-methanol, whatever it might be. And I think you know, we've probably got a, quite a bridgehead compared to other countries that we can do that. So if we can develop those new nascent technologies that we have coming on stream, like you said, that transition to the next generation, I think we could use that experience to export overseas. I know we've got some unique geology in the UK where we can store carbon under the North Sea. There's maybe a, few, a couple of markets around the world that we can use that for. 
but if we can just get moving on some of these things, like we said before, try and make things easier and get them across the line, then I think we will be seen as a leader that we can export that to other countries. Like your example of uh, Kopi in Japan. I think that's a, a good example. Right, slavery. Let's <laughs> go there. Okay, and I was paid. Uh, Andy, uh, transferable skill sets with a catapult? No, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in Aberdeen, so, you know, I, I, I witnessed line dancing taking over. And, you know, and that, to me, actually just showed that, you know, where it is a skill shortage, it's a global market and people continue to, to, to move around. And that, that, to me, is the lesson to take away from it, is that, you know, we can focus very much on some of the manufacturing capabilities, engineering capabilities, but in terms of exports, it's a global market. Anything that fits inside a, a, a shipping container is fair game for, for global markets. And that cuts both ways. It means it's a massive opportunity for the UK to export, but it also means that we need to compete on a, on a global stage when it comes to it. And that's very much the case with, with offshore wind, where we're seeing where we are having UK content. It's very much around the O&M side of things. Blades factories, I won't forget, Steve, um, the work that we're, doing, <laughs> that we're doing there. But a lot of that O&M expertise built from the fact that, you know, we took the bold initiative to make sure the UK was first in terms of deployment. We need to use that and start exporting that. But, the, you know, the recognition that knowledge is exportable through services, through engineering, and making sure that we're leveraging our leading position is, I guess, the lesson from oil and gas. And I guess the second thing from oil and gas is transferable skills. And, you know, that, that just transition or how we want to, to position it, really, really important. Let's build on the knowledge that's there. There's lots of synergies, particularly between oil and gas and floating wind. We should be building on that, and that gives us already created exportable opportunities. Thank you. Um, and and uh, Gordon, you, are, you, are, you have a foot in both camps, self-confessed, so uh, you know, at some stage, you know, the train is leaving the station, you have a foot on one platform on the train, you know, you have to do something. Uh, any advice, uh, you know, uh, what are you seeing here in this area in terms of... Yeah, yeah. well, I, th I think, John, um, I'm feeling my age here a little bit because I started, my first job was in 1979, and I worked for a company called Thomson McClintic, which is now KPMG, and my very first audit was the British National Oil Company, uh, BNOC. And there's a book about that in itself, you know, about missed opportunities. And in fact, the, at that time, there was an organization called the Offshore Supplies Office. And there was the, the, the director of that was a guy called Norman Smith. And he wrote a very good book about missed opportunities in relation to the oil and gas industry in the UK. Uh, so it's worth, uh, worth referring to that if, you, if we want to do think and learn lessons from what we didn't do in the oil and gas sector. And when you asked the question, I was going to say, which boom? Because there was five booms. In my working life, the oil price dived, tanked five times. And we, every time, it built back up again. But we all knew at some point, we knew at some point it was going to come off the end. Um, but the first one was in 1985, and uh, I think Steve referred to there, and, 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 and so did Andy. There were a lot of Americans in Aberdeen at that time. And in 1985, 3,000 Americans who were in senior management positions in oil companies in Aberdeen disappeared in three weeks. And it allowed a huge opportunity for the, for the people below them within the UK to take responsible positions within the oil and gas companies. Um, but the, the more important thing was that the whole of the northeast of Scotland uh, and wider UK recognised that this oil and gas industry was very fickle. And really, we needed to start to look outward we couldn't depend on that industry to, for our future. 
And we had to, so we started taking trade missions to things like the Offshore Technology Congress in, uh, in uh, Houston, which still goes on to this day, but also do trade missions around the world. And I worked um, from 1984 with an organization called the Northeast Scotland Development Authority. And it was about helping businesses start up and get into the oil and gas industry or diversify into the oil and gas industry. So we had a series of loans and grants and uh, property deals to try and encourage inward investment, but also indigenous businesses to start and build up. And many of the companies came out of the existing oil and gas operators. You know, and I think there's something to learn there as well, because we have got growing expertise and we will see opportunities for us to move into um, more production of materials. And one of my hobby horses uh, relates to the fact that I think we should be focusing a bit more on producing the equipment that produces the wind or wave or whatever, power and ultimately electricity or hydrogen, and a bit less on the utility. Um, you know, we need to get the balance a bit better because at the moment we are like we were in 1982, uh, where all the equipment other than the rigs, because up until 1982, every rig was produced in the, in the UK, thanks to the OSO. No legislation, but the OSO. Um, so we need to think about that very carefully. Not just produce the stuff, whether it be electricity or hydrogen, but let's start thinking about how we can invest in businesses, young businesses in the UK, and stick with them. The way the Canadian government invested in Ballard for 15 years with losses before they started being successful in hydrogen fuel cell production. So we need in the UK to think a little bit more longer term and make more longer commitment. And maybe things like tidal, where we have an advantage. Maybe we should be thinking about that because we have an advantage just now. Let's not lose it. It's not seen as being very sexy at the moment, but in terms of intermittency, tidal and wave to a lesser extent can play a huge role in that. So we have lessons to learn. Let's think about what we need to do in terms of supporting young businesses in the UK. In the spirit of solidarity with the people in the room here, where we say we're the glass half full people, you heard it here first. If this transition all goes really badly pear-shaped, you can write a book and still make money out of it. So there's <laughs> always a bottom to this. Um, oh, thanks for that, Gordon. And um, also, nice segue into, you know, uh, we were in the North Sea a minute ago, kind of chilly up there. Uh, but what we're saying is, you know, we can't do everything. You can't be the leader in everything. It's, it's, it's just too difficult. It's just too big and there's too many competitors. So we are not going to boil the ocean here, but we have to, mixing metaphors nicely, we have to sort of pick, you know, pick which targets. And you were kind of leaning into that a little bit there. So um, Steve from a Siemens, you know, you have a nice cockpit there, good visibility. Maybe you might share without giving any trade secrets to ABB spies or whoever is in the room. Uh, you know, wh what, where do you see the UK as having a sort of a license, a serious streak red to say, okay, we own this segment of the new green economy. This is UK and we blast that around the planet. Um, I think hydrogen, I've, I've mentioned hydrogen already. I think hydrogen, if we, if we get a rack together, we, we can take a leading position on that. We've got all of the excess wind. We've got 50 gigawatts of renewable energy to come on by 2030 and constraining that wind will you know it's 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 not sensible is it where national grid are having to pay money to constrain wind because you don't need it if you can create hydrogen store it for when you need it i think that's uh, something that's unique that we can do 
can I, can I just pick up on one of the things that was said before? I think another thing that we could do is collaboration. I think we have to think now of collaboration like we've never ever thought of it before. You have to collaborate more than you've ever done. Nobody has all the answers. So if I use our example, a bit like um, David and Goliath, we uh, big Siemens Energy, 90,000 people around the, the world. We're collaborating with a starter company in Newcastle we're making these hydrogen power units. We just signed an order for 40 of them last week. And this started off from an idea, you know, and, and we were challenging that, the big organization trying to give it all the love and smother it all to death. But eventually it sort of took off. And now it's got people like BBC, Netflix, High Speed 2, Network Rail, and we're doing these all over the place. And, and we're transitioning the people that used to make carbon intensive stuff, coal power plants and things like that, and now they're building these hydrogen power units. So I just think you should not look, and I mean, there's lots of innovators and investors in this hall today. We should just not look at things in a traditional way, think a little bit outside the box and, uh, and see if you can make them work. So two things spring to mind straight away. One is my uncle, ESB, uh, 1927 founded, but basically the partnership was with Siemens. It was. 20% of the government's budget that year diverted the largest river in the British Isles, the River Shannon, the longest probably, uh, to, they moved the whole river, right? Uh, you couldn't do it today, but it, that was, we were 100% renewable back then, now we're trying to get back, so thanks to, thanks to Siemens. I think it was one of the, you know, largest projects of its kind in the world. So, uh, you know, if you could move rivers almost 100 years ago, now we only have to move mountains, mountains. here. So the metaphors are getting munched here nicely. Uh, so, uh, Andy, yeah, I, mean, I, I think, you know, you know, my head is all in offshore wind. It's, all, it's important to think not just about the, the nacelle and the turbine itself. I think you need to think about the whole balance of plant piece. And, and the, the crossover from oil and gas and the subsea technologies is something that I think is, is a really, really important growth area. I think there's real opportunities there. I think it's highly exportable as well, and I think we've got a knowledge base to build on. So subsea technologies, whether it's survey work, whether it's interventions, uh, taking the way right through to, to the cable side. So I think that's one clear area where, where we, we should be growing and I think we will grow. The other, I think the overall electrical systems, there's, there's a lot of strong knowledge, you know, particularly in the Midlands, uh, around uh, well, both HVAC but also HVDC. And there's going to be more and more HVDC coming through. I think the UK can take a lead in terms of taking that forward. I think we, we shouldn't forget areas around composites. We've got a huge skill set from the aerospace sector around composites that I think can also extend into what we're doing, and I think we should join those areas. So I, I could probably go on. There's a long list I get really excited about, but those would probably be my top three for just now. Okay, thank you. Uh, Gordon, from your perspective, yeah. where do we carve the niche? Yeah, John, I, th I think uh, agreeing with Andy, you've always got to agree when you come to the end in, in terms of being the last to speak, but the subsea engineering story has been a fantastic story in the UK. Uh, looking at the northeast of England and, uh, and up the Aberdeen area, there really are world-class subsea engineering companies there. Um, and they already export significantly globally. And you know, if you look at companies like Balmoral uh, Engineering in Aberdeen and their scour, system, scour protect system, their HEX system, they've moved into that and diversified out of oil and gas in the last three years, basically. And they've seized the opportunity and moved forward. And there are many more examples of companies who are in there as part of the global underwater hub um, that's just op opening new offices I see in South, and sorry, it's in Bristol and, uh, and, and uh, Newcastle in the coming weeks. Um, you know, there's a whole 
cohort of companies there that really are world class, and we should build on that. That would be the first one. The, the second piece would be what Steve was saying about hydrogen. And I think in particular, the production of hydrogen offshore. And there are two projects, that, three projects I'm aware of. There's the Dolphin project in Aberdeen, which is ERM, working on the Kincardine field. Uh, there's the second one, which is Vattenfall in the Aberdeen Bay. And there's a third very exciting um, partnership between a company in Norwich called Aquaterra um, Engineering and Bohr Drilling from Norway to produce hydrogen and jackups adjacent to offshore wind farms and close to pipelines. And do, they've done a tremendous amount of work and are now working on opportunities to deliver this, which can be delivered pretty quickly. And we're seeing interest from around the world on their proposals and their, uh, the, the opportunities that they bring. The third piece is one that I mentioned already, which is, I keep on going on about it, but EMEC up in Orkney, you know, we really have got a world-class facility there. And we've had over 30 machines uh, in terms of tidal and wave tested and commercial from Orbital Marine. We've other companies like QED Naval um, and younger companies like Zoex and a whole range of other companies who are at an earlier stage than wind and it'll maybe take 10 to 15 years. But really, there is, we, we have got expertise there. We've got, we're in the same position as the hovercraft was 40 years ago, you know, there. We don't want to lose that because you can build these machines in the UK relatively easily. So let's not lose that. We often bemoan the fact that we don't build the wind turbines, uh, either the towers or the nacelles here in the UK. But goodness me, here is an opportunity. And the fourth area, I think, is the whole the engineering house side in the UK in terms of developing projects and uh, managing the delivery of projects. Companies like Wood are, again, right up there. So, yeah, that's where I think we, we focus. Well, it sounds like there's a number of key pieces of the jigsaw, and this is, uh, none of us have a monopoly on wisdom, but we have absolute centers of excellence which contribute to, you know, we have a global existential crisis, threat to the way of life, as we know from, the, made very clear this morning, uh, and some of the key intellectual pieces are available in this country, and the, I think the, not having the monopoly of wisdom means we collaborate with other people and get these solutions out and get them out fast, test them in the global market. If they are, then they go, they go everywhere. So uh, thanks for that. Um, okay, penultimate question here. Uh, what changes, and, and uh, Gordon, you're going to go first this time, so you can't be complaining. Uh, as a policy maker, you'll love this one. What changes need to happen to accelerate? You know, we're saying, look, you know, we had first mover advantage and we went off and we into the pits and we had tea or something. And when we came back out, we were in third position. Something went wrong. The Chinese did a shimmy on us. So what do we need to do? What what's, are the missing rungs on the ladder that we forgot to build? Are there barriers that we're stupidly throwing at ourselves unnecessarily? What needs to change? I mean, these people in the room cast votes. They know people. They're influencers, shakers and makers. What is the message to say, actually, if you could sort these two or three steps, we'd be back up in pole position, we'd have jobs, we'd be in gravy. What needs to happen? Yeah, I think, I think John, we need certainty uh, on two issues. One is policy going forward. But the most important one for me is price. Um, people have got to know what the return is. Uh, when it gets in front of the board and they, they're trying to make a decision, 
they need to know from government, and we're beginning to get it to come through, but it's a, you know, we need more and uh, sooner. We need to have certainty, for example, in hydrogen, that what the price is going to be. I'm working with the Canadians, as you said earlier, in particular the government of Nova Scotia just now. Uh, they're very excited in terms of their first licensing round for wind and power to X, and they are negotiating with the Germans on price. But we need the UK government to work on that piece as well. We need to have greater quantities of hydrogen with certainty. So we've got Scotland with 28 gigawatts of, of, of energy, of electricity waiting there. And we know that there is not the transmission to deal with that. We know that the largest chunk of that is likely to go to hydrogen. But it's not going to happen until we know that we've got, A, the ability to get it somewhere, and most importantly, the price. We need to know that it's going, it's, you can do it to make it wash its face, at the very least. It's all exciting, but we need some certainty. And do you see that in, you know, you're in the hydrogen groups, you guys? I, is there a lobby saying, this is the price we need, give us this price, and we'll, we'll get it done by three years or something like that? Is that ongoing right now, behind the scenes? Well, I think Steve will come on to that. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll uh, talk oh, about that. Straight up, Steve. Uh, yeah, yeah. Curve off. So, so bus <laughs> business models, I think, are the key uh, business models. I think um, my preference would be that we think of some simpler models now to make sure that we don't lose this green hydrogen market because once we lose it, we won't get it back. I'm talking about like the supply chain. So think of some simpler models now. Over the next six months, I'm talking about not a year, not two years. And not trying to hone everything to have one model that fixes everything. Because I think if we do that, we'll lose time and we can't wait till 2025. Um, and I think during that period, we will learn as well from deployment and we can modify things. Like the CFDs have changed over years. It's not the same size now as it was in the early days. So I think learn from experience in, in that type of thing. Some of the other things, if you look at um, you know, the excess wind that you have in Scotland, I know Germany is really desperate to look at alternative gas supplies. I'm pretty sure they will be confident in taking a pipeline of hydrogen across to Germany um, with the excess wind. Because you've only at the moment you've only got a transmission network of about two gigawatts. Uh, Scotland and South are going to build it to six. So what are you going to do with the rest of it? Yep. You're going to have to make hydrogen or something like that with it. You heard it here first. This time next year, the pipeline was built. Remember? Oh, we heard about that. Thanks, Steve. Um, Andy, so if you got a six-pack of magic fairy dust and you could take away barriers, which barriers would you bulldoze first to get to get on with the show here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think history tells us you need to be bold and, and bold in terms of policy. We've seen safety worked in terms of driving costs down. You know, we've seen you know when when policy moved towards gas, industry followed. You know, so when you can send those signals to, to industry, it will absolutely follow. I think we're in the position at the moment where we're sending the top-level ambitious targets, but we're not showing the more detailed targets in between that, and we're finding a way of underwriting that. And the, the most common thing that I hear from, from companies at the moment is they want to make investment, they've got money to make the investments, or they can find that, that money. They know the market's going to expand, but they don't have certainty over when the contracts are going to come and if they're going to win the contracts. And, and yes, no market will ever be certain. There's always going to be risk, but it needs to be a manageable risk for for business and finding a way of bridging those long-term targets with shorter-term, nearer-term ways of providing an underwrite for some of the investment that's going on is, is something that's, that's needed. I, I, can I add, I think yeah. pipelines are key. Having pipeline visibility will attract, will attract investments and having confidence. If you don't have that pipeline, people won't invest. You're seeing on the transmission business, 
what is it? There is no transition Ooh. without transmission. Another T-shirt, <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, remember that one? <laughs> and, and it's true. If you look at some of the other operators, uh, national operators, they're, they're ordering convoy projects. They're mopping up capacity around the world. It's a global market, this now. And if we don't get on and do some of this ourselves, cut the red tape, cut the planning times and things like that, we're going to lose out and we're going to be playing catch-up. So I'm still keen to be on the first corner, but there's some things we need to do to get around that corner. Fantastic. Um, we're running a bit low on time, I think, so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, ask you to maybe dig deep. There's, there's some entrepreneurs hiding in here. Inside every ordinary people, I can see loads in there, they're all ordinary, uh, is an entrepreneur, uh, captain of industry, bursting to get out. So what is the thing you could say that would encourage the inner entrepreneur or even somebody who's in a larger company trying to push the innovation boundaries, which is sometimes harder than just being an entrepreneur, I can tell you, uh, but uh, pain, scars. Uh, but no, is it, what is the, like uh, maybe, uh, Steve, you look like you're about to say something, so you, you can go first. Um, what, what kind of top tip would you give to people here who are thinking, I want to crack something, I want to I start a scalable business that can you know, export and make an impact on this challenge? I'm, I'm not going to say one thing, I'll say a few things. I, th I think I would say go for it, really get on and go for it and uh, don't take no for an answer. I would say collaborate, don't forget the big boys. So if you're a little company, talk to some big companies as well because I'm sure they're quite interested as well. And, and I would also say, think of the market that we're in how many markets are as big as this opportunity ahead of you? It's fantastic. It's also daunting. We're just I've used this in a speech before. Does anybody know what it means, how long we've got to get to 2050 net zero? We've got less than a billion seconds to do all that decarbonization if we're going to achieve net zero by 2050. It's frightening, isn't it? But what a wonderful opportunity. No pressure. A billion seconds. Let's get on with it. Well, I do a quick ad for free electrons, actually, now that you mentioned. So some of the opportunities are free. The clue is in the name. So our sales ESB and a bunch of other utilities, 80 million customers, machines around the world, offer a free competition, a $200,000 prize as well. Uh, we got 750 applications this year to entrepreneurs from 74 countries. Your point, collaboration. We don't have a monopoly on wisdom. We're trying to find good solutions to decarbonize for our customers, with our customers, behind scope three. We have to chase down our customers, decarbonize them as well, wash them, put them back. You know, it's getting really busy. So we need, we just don't have the tech. There's no silver bullet. So bringing a true entrepreneurs, all of these people will be able to help you. Anybody with some budding idea, don't, don't, don't die in a vacuum wondering. Try it out, test it. People really want to help you. This is a, this is a cause. This is absolute cause. The call outs here all day. And we've got people who are energetic and passionate to help you. Speaking of which, Mr. Catapult, slingshot in there. <laughs> Top tip, get us over the line. Thank you, John. Well, I mean, you know, honestly, there's never been a better time. That, that's, that's the honest truth. You know, when I started this, you know, on, on offshore wind 10 years ago, it was all about cost reduction. It's now about net zero. It's now about energy security. There's more and more reasons why we need to succeed, and, and that's just more and more opportunities. And it's also a global opportunity as well. So, so the time is now. That, that's, that's when to do it. There's lots of support. So my one tip would be seek advice. There's lots of people here that will help you, you know, from whether it's you know, DTP in terms of you know, Department of Trade and Business, eh, whether it's Catapults Networks, whether it's UK Export Finance, you know, in, terms of, in terms of exports in terms of regional organizations, in terms of the trade associations, who do a fantastic job as well. There's lots and lots of people that will help you. There's guides that will tell you which markets 
uh, are ready, what they're needed in each market and where you can get different support. So do seek seek help, do ask questions and, and uh, you know, go for it, absolutely. Okay, we're in a race against time, literally, not just the, you know, 2050 and, you know, cut off here before the trap door opens. But, uh, you know, so top tip is ask somebody who knows, it'll save you a lot of time. Okay, nice. Gordon, take us home, baby. Yeah, yeah, well, I think, I think that's good advice you've got from the first two. Um, I think collaboration, um, and especially in relation to innovation, because uh, innovation and cost reduction still going to be very, very important. And there are lots of organizations out there. In the northeast of England, NOF do a fantastic job. EIC uh, do a fantastic job, as saw Stuart here today. Um, Areg in the northeast of Scotland. But they're there with experience to help you to go along and speak to them about what you might want to do. And look internationally, look at collaboration. There is money available, as you're saying, John, internationally. Uh, so a, a bit of work I'm doing just now is for the Canadian Ocean Supercluster. And they're looking, they've got an energy innovation call and they've got 100 million. And they're looking at pairing up Canadian companies with collaborators around the world. So there are real opportunities. Uh, this is, uh, I think, to put it, I mean, we are in a race, and I'm just quoting what the Canadian Energy Minister said yesterday. We're on a, in a race, we're going to give 80 billion of uh, Canadian tax credits for Canada to win it, but we can take advantage of collaboration in some of those other countries as well. But it is, and remember when you go to other countries, they want their local content piece as well. We want our local content piece here, but, you know, the opportunity in front of us is absolutely incredible. So don't be frightened about it. Take, if you've got an idea, speak to folk, do your market research, but more important than anything, make a go of it. Have a go. Have a go, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm gonna finish with a Nobel laureate, actually just happens to be Irish, George Bernard Shaw. Rather than paraphrase him, I decided to scribble it down uh, over breakfast. Progress is impossible without change. And those who can't change their minds can't change anything. So the call, I think, from these, my learned colleagues here is go forth, change better, change bigger, and change faster, and make an impact. Let's make an impact together. Thank you very much, everybody.